Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm really pleased to welcome my friend Harold Rosen. He's been on a previous podcast several years ago. He's the founder and executive director of the Grassroots Business Initiative. Harold spent 30 years managing the International Finance Corporations, which is the private sector of the World Bank groups. He had various roles at the IFC, and he took the IFC into various new geographic areas and sectors. He also helped get the IFC into the microfinance space. The IFC ultimately became the largest investor in microfinance as a private sector for-profit investor in microfinance. He also got the IFC into the entire space of what's called technical assistance. They have a fancy term for it. They call it advisory services. But Harold invented the concept or helped kind of create or develop technical assistance as we know it at development finance institutions. If you follow development finance institutions, this is a big deal. And so he was a part of that. He also was a promoter and an innovator in saying the International Finance Corporation needed to do more in small and medium-sized enterprises and started a department called the SME department. So he was an iconoclast at the IFC. He was a pioneer at the IFC. He was an innovator at the IFC. Oftentimes, hidebound and conservative organizations, small C conservative organizations, don't like innovators or creative thinkers. And so Harold often pushed the bounds of what was possible at the IFC, and the organization is a much better place because of all of his efforts. And the development finance space and global development are much better because of his efforts. He joined the World Bank Group in 1978 through what's called the Young Professionals Program. And if you want to join the World Bank Group, that's the way to do it. That's the door you want to enter. He's got an MBA from Harvard. He's got a bachelor's and master's from the University of Pennsylvania. But what I want to talk about today is the concept of blended finance, which is a whole area that he was an innovator in and one of the original thinkers and doers of the concept of blended finance. He stood up something within the IFC. He said, I've done all these other things. I wanna create another area called grassroots business finance. He said, I'm gonna create something called the grassroots business fund. It was incubated in essence at the IFC and then I think was largely spun out And he's got ties to various philanthropies and official donors and development finance institutions. So both whether it was at the IFC and then as a relatively independent entity starting around 2007, 2008, he has about 18 years of experience in the area of blended finance. I asked Harold to come back on because Harold has just published a new report. The Grassroots Business Fund has published a new report saying, okay, 18 years of blended finance, impact and lessons learned. So I thought, okay, well, this is one of the most serious people in the space. There's a lot of hot air, to put it nicely, on blended finance and impact investing. He's actually, I think, someone very serious doer and thinker about this. So if he's putting out a report on this, I think it's worth having on to have a conversation with him about blended finance and impact and lessons learned. So Harold, thanks for being on. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's always great to speak with you. Thanks for being on my podcast today. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me. So Harold, I told people a little bit about your background, but why don't you give folks a little bit more how you ended up at the Grassroots Business Fund. Talk a little bit about the arc of your career from your perspective. 
Yeah, so I joined the World Bank Group, as Dan said, through the Young Professionals Program. I knew I wanted to do something that was business-related, had an MBA, but also do it in a way that would stretch geographically into new areas, stretch to groups that hadn't been served before, and stretch to products and services that weren't traditionally in the ballywick of such organizations. The first 15 or 20 years of my career, I was more or less doing traditional financial markets and uh, real sector investment work for IFC. But there was always that something missing, that we were very restricted in terms of what we could do. First, we had to have a good full risk-adjusted return. Second, we had to work with top-tier intermediaries or recipients of the money, which meant you know well-established companies with strong partners or banks with the equivalent. So there was always that the other 80 or 90 percent, as I call it, in most countries doesn't have most of that. And that's why you walk around a lot of African countries, which I often did and said, where's the development business here? And I just always had the idea and it was my calling that I wanted to try to get the World Bank Group to stretch into these new areas. It was clear that part of the answer was going to be it's not a cool term in terms, you know, politically, but subsidies. Blended finance is really the blending of putting together of soft money or grant money with commercial money. The idea being, if you can do something on an 80% commercial basis and it needs a 20% subsidy, that's of four times leverage of the grant portion. And there's not the alternative to do it all on a commercial basis because those things don't get done on a fully commercial basis. But a lot of people, this was a lot of the struggle, Dan, you're referring to is in a not just IFC, in the development business, in the development finance institutions, there's this feeling that uh, there's 100% commercial and then there's 100% soft. So this idea of the practicalities of blending, of getting both sides to move a bit to the middle, having the, the investors accept a little bit of underpinning, that underpinning can be to soften the financial instrument, it can be to provide technical assistance alongside, but all of this is to the end of trying to reach people in those difficult African countries, for instance, that just don't get any help from the official institutions. You know, we started doing it as part of a normal investment function. That's microfinance was sort of as far as I could pull the organization. Even then it was very difficult, but then it started getting more. You know, so what about NGOs in Cambodia that help disabled people? They need a little more blending or they're not a financial institution. So it got a little, as I say, funkier and funkier. At some point, I said, well, I'd love to keep people like the IFC and the other DFIs involved. I also want to be able to involve foundations and donors. And after a few years of piloting this uh, within the IFC, I decided together with IFC to spin it off. IFC gave me a nice nest egg of grant money to start it. And then I raised money from private foundations and bilaterals and then eventually raised some investment capital to do a fund. So that's kind of a long-winded arc of my career and how I got to this. So Harold, could you tell me, so there's lots of people who have lots of definitions of what is blended finance. Could you give me, what is your definition of impact investing and what's your definition of blended finance? Well, let's take impact investing first. A lot of people use a very broad definition so that almost anything that happens in a development institution, whether it's commercial or not, or blended is impact investing. My own thought is that it's got to be at least a little bit, as I call it, stretchy, or in other words, going beyond what a normal fully commercial approach would reach. So you could say it's impact first investing rather than finance first. Things that get to, again, people and organizations and companies that would not get help 
from the existing institutions. That's my definition of impact investing. Blended finance, as I mentioned earlier, is really the putting together of commercial funds with something less commercial. It can be soft loans, it could be grants, but in other words, to soften the financial requirements of the money and also to take care of the reasons why the straight up financial sector won't do something. In other words, it's not that banks are evil or bad, that they won't deal with these companies, it's that they're not really investment ready. So you can get them investment ready, and that's where the whole idea of capacity building and technical assistance funded partly with grants is very important. It's also very contentious because, you know, this idea of mixing oil and water and you're putting soft money into the flow of something commercial, a lot of people see that as an irreparable poison. I view it as it makes it hard not to create wrong incentives. But without it, we've shown over the last 50 years that too big a part of the population in tough places are just not going to get help from the system. And that has huge effects for peace and stability, a sense of fairness. People can take a pretty big level of, um, uh, what do you call it, unequal income distribution, as long as there is a, a playing field that allows them to try to get ahead. So the idea that small business can actually get a little bit of soft support to become commercial and investment ready, it really creates a sense of democratic participation and fairness. And you see it in places where small business sector developed well, you know, South Korea started out as an SME story. And, you know, you buy yourself a huge measure of political peace from the population if you can say that, well, you may be a lot poorer than the people you look up to on the totem pole, but you've at least got a chance and we're going to help you. It's a little bit like the Veterans Administration or the things that the U.S. government did, you know, the SBA, or to try to instill that same sense of fairness and the system still wants to create pathways for people near the bottom to move up. So Harold, given all this, what is the Grassroots Business Fund and how does it fit into this conversation? Well, the Grassroots Business Fund's had a bit of a long and winding journey. We started out as an internal program called the Grassroots Business Initiative from, well, my last four years before retiring. That was 2004, 2008. That was when IFC basically gave, and the World Bank gave me a pile of mostly soft money. And then I could use some of their investment as well to do things like the early microfinance, helping those NGOs in Cambodia. But that was all pretty much grant funded and I could take a lot of risk. After four years of that, we decided, for the reasons I mentioned, to spin it off, keep the World Bank Group involved, but involve many others as well. And we did that also for a couple of years on grant money. After that, you know, the idea of doing a commercial and investing job with all grant money uh, was always a bit of a dream, and I knew it wasn't going to last. I didn't want it to last. So we did the same thing ourselves that a lot of our investees do. We moved along that continuum towards more a higher proportion of commercial funds. So in 2008, we set up a for-profit but developmentally minded closed-end fund. That's the current fund that we're finishing up now that is the Grassroots Business Investors. That's a for-profit fund. It's got DFIs in. And this is all on commercial basis like you know FMO, DEG, Calvert, Deutsche Bank, and then a bunch of private investors. None of that is grants, but then we also blended into that pool of capital some grant money, and then we put a pool of grants alongside for the capacity building of the investees. And that's what we're running now. We're closing out the first fund. We've uh, raised a second fund for Latin America. We're trying to put one together now for Africa. And we are getting hired by a number of important people for advisory work. I can say the GIZ, which is the large German development agency, MasterCard Foundation, people are hiring us to manage their development initiatives in the SME space. 
So that's basically a fee earning business for us. That is capital booking as well. Those fee earning things are typically investing money for others or helping them design programs to do that. But we also are obviously have our own money to invest as well. So you know, it gives us a foot in both spheres of, you know, being a proper fund manager, but also sharing our knowledge with a wider swath of the field. Okay. Is blended finance overhyped? Uh, I don't know. There's a value judgment implied in the terms overhyped. So I wouldn't say necessarily overhyped, but I'd say it's used liberally to suit various institutions' purposes. I'd say it's overused. In other words, the definition I gave, which is something about impact first or not just doing investments in a tough place and calling that impact investing, things that require a special structural design feature and stretch, that to me is impact investing and worthy of some subsidy or grants. You know, a lot of large institutions will categorize almost everything they do as impact investing. And I always say if something could happen without subsidies and without blending, it's really not impact investing, as I would call it. But Again, to each their own. I, I don't own the term. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways to interpret what does impact investing mean. So, Harold, so you've done all this work. You're one of the innovators in impact investing. You're one of the innovators in the concept of blended finance. You know, you started within IFC. You were then spun out with some generous resourcing. You then, with a lot of blood, sweat and tears and a lot of shoe leather, have continued to demonstrate the model, grow the model you know, slowly but surely, and now you have this report. So tell me about why did you write this report now? What are two or three bumper stickers that people should know about it? A lot of it was a response to our investors and donors over the last 15 or so years who have said, gosh, you sure know a lot and you're learning even more. Couldn't you find a way to share that with the field? And I've always been the sort of guy that says, let me make sure I got something to share before I start sharing. So, you know, I wanted to get to the end of this fund and have gone through a full cycle of building capacity and pro poor businesses. That's about where we've got to now. So it was a lot of it response to our funders who said, let's see what you know. And like I said, I do feel an obligation since we've been funded with a lot of public money to try to share this more broadly than just the few people who give us funding. So that was the motivation for it. In terms of headlines and what we've learned, I would say the concept of real blended finance is still as valid as ever. That our experience the last 15 or 18 years proves out that you can get to a way, way bigger swath of the development challenge if you can do some intelligent blending of grant money together with for-profit capital. That's one thing. Uh, I'd say the way you do the capacity building, that especially when you're dealing with companies that you know a lot of them have sales of $1 million, $5 million, so they're small and it's very expensive to get up close to them, but you have to. If you want to sort of dribble out and you have to dribble out technical assistance money. You can't just throw a huge consulting assignment at a company like this. They're undermanaged. They're often founder family controlled. They have lots of ego and lots of issues besides just technical ones. So you have to get close to them. You have to stay next to them for a long time and be in a position to pull things back when they go off track because they almost always do. Anyone that thinks they can program two or three years worth of grant money as capacity building in one of these situations is kidding themselves. So that's a big lesson we've learned. You know, it's expensive. It's a big part of our cost structure. But being able to be in regular physical contact with these companies, catch them when there's a family squabble that's interrupting a piece of a critical piece of consulting work, or a lot of times you discover something's wrong that wasn't what you set out to solve. A lot of these companies don't know what they don't know, and that means you got to work with them 
listen to them, discovery-based planning. You have to learn by doing, you get six months into a job and you say, oops, it's not just finding them other types of funding or writing them a fancy business plan. It's getting their cash management system in shape. You know, a lot of these companies don't even think about what's coming in two quarters or three quarters. They just live hand to mouth or they don't even really separate the family money from the business funding. So that kind of setting it up so that they become investment ready, that's a way longer and harder thing. It's like with ourselves. I mean, we've gone through an evolution too. People ask me, how long does it take to achieve this conversion in these companies from sort of mom and pop, poorly managed companies to something that can really fulfill their potential and attract commercial funding? It's probably closer to 10 years than to five years. And it's certainly not less than five years. So that's another thing is just having the patience and the approach to work with these companies. And I guess the other thing is just issues like gender, for instance. There's you know, I've always been struck, and Jen, Dan, you might remember, there was always a debate in the World Bank group, let's do dedicated, specialized things for gender. I always took the approach, if you do the right things in almost any development setting, you'll help a lot of women because they're, I don't want to say more responsible, but they play the role in the family, in the village. And we found that in spades, that you don't need to really do a whole lot of special targeting. You just need to do the right things, which means invest in businesses that are pro-poor, make sure that the distribution of the benefits are being fair. But if they are, then um, you're going to do a lot of good for a lot of groups that are seen as worthy of a special emphasis. I'd say that's three of the lessons that um, they're in the report as well. But there's a lot of lessons beyond the ones I just mentioned. Okay. So if I want to get this report, where do I go online to get it? Good question. It is on our website. If somebody goes to the gbfund.org our website. They'll see it there. Okay. Well, Harold, look, I am really appreciated. I've always thought you were one of these folks that always just kept their heads down and did the work. You know, you're happy to tell a story when you've got something to tell. You clearly have a great story to tell now. And so I think I wanted to make sure that my listeners had a chance to hear about the great work you're doing at the Grassroots Business Fund and to check out this new report that you did. Harold, thanks for coming on Building the Future with Dan Rundy. It's always great to speak with you. And I hope to see you soon. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 